Good afternoon, New York, and the rest of our listeners around the globe. My name is June Stoyer, and I'm the host of the Organic View Radio Show. Our podcast is available on iTunes, Zoom, and you can also visit our website at www.theorganicview.com. If you'd like to be on the show or would like to find out about sponsorship opportunities, please contact us at questions at theorganicview.com. Today's show is sponsored by Eden Foods, the most trusted name in certified organic clean food. When you shop online at EdenFoods.com, enter the coupon code ORGVIEW to receive 20% off any regularly priced items, excluding cases. For other promotional offers, please visit TheOrganicView.com's website. And don't forget to check out our contest section. Today, my guest is Karen Dussolini, and she's going to be discussing something called naturescaping which is basically peaceful coexistence between nature and people. Thanks to extensive urban development over the last several decades, there's been a battle for land between homeowners and nature. Many people in suburban areas often complain about rabbits, bears, coyotes, and other wildlife invading their backyards. Unfortunately, these beings have no other place to go as their home in the wilderness has been destroyed. To boot, the toxic garden chemicals homeowners apply often contain neonicotinoids such as imidacloprid and clothianidin, which will also kill pollinators such as butterflies and honeybees. As a result of this ecological imbalance, many people are turning to naturescaping to curtail this loss of habitat. Naturescaping is a method of landscaping that allows people and nature to coexist by incorporating native plants, conserving water, and reducing chemical use, you can effectively attract insects, birds, and other beings which will also contribute to the health of fresh water while creating a backyard wildlife sanctuary. I mean, it's just really something else. Uh, So today, that's what we're going to be talking about, how you can incorporate this into your own backyard. So I would like to welcome to the show, Karen Bussolini. Good afternoon, Karen. Well, hello. It's... um Amazing that we're both indoors just now. I went outside to weed a while ago and almost didn't come back in. <laughs> it is gorgeous in the Northeast, folks. And uh, for those of you that are in areas where it's quite uh, cold, um, now we have to break a little bit here. In, in uh, well, I'm in New York and Karen's in Connecticut, uh, but uh, it's a beautiful spring day today. And I'm sitting at my desk looking out at zillions of flowers. It's so exciting. <laughs> Uh, Karen, um, can you tell our audience about yourself? You have such an amazing background, and you've also worked with my friend Ruth Clausen. Oh, Ruth is the best. She's, <laughs> she's great. Oh, where to start? Well, I grew up in the country in Connecticut, and um, I've always just been na- part of nature. And we had a big organic garden. We grew almost all of our own food. And um, it's kind of funny. I remember... Um, in the 60s when Organic Gardening Magazine would come, my father and I would race each other to see who could grab it first. And he was very amused that there was a name for it because to him it was just gardening. You know, the the child of Italian immigrants um, hadn't been sold by all of the uh, synthetic chemicals that Suddenly, after World War II, they had to figure out something to do with, so they marketed them to unsuspecting gardeners. Mm. Um, so it's just gardening, and it, I feel that way too. It's just sense, it just makes sense, and the whole idea of learning from nature 
is something that just gets more and more interesting all the time. There's so much to know. There's so much to learn. And I think it's interesting that this whole concept of naturescaping is something that's been around a very long time, but it's had a very nice resurgence, and people are starting to look at their land much differently, and I think it's because of the fact that there are so many environmental concerns and also because of the rapid decline of honeybees, and it, it almost seems as though in certain pockets uh, it's you don't really see many butterflies. That's true, and I think that... Um people have this sort of generalized worry about things, you know, global warming and invasive plants and West Nile virus and Lyme disease and all these things that are really symptoms of ecosystems being out of whack, but they don't, they kind of want to do the right thing, but they don't know what that is. And I feel like my role is to teach homeowners um, things that they can do in their own yards that really make a difference in, in, um, in repairing habitats and attracting wildlife and feeding them. And it's funny, in your introduction, you were talking about suburban places and coexisting with raccoons and bears and things like that. And um, that's a really good example, but I don't live in suburbia. I live in the country. And um, people still insist on putting their bird feeders out, even though um, the bears won't go hibernate if they have a lot to eat. And I have one garden coaching client who had bears rip the siding off her garage to get at the um, the bird seed that was stored in the garage. <laughs> and so, you know, I'm really helping people plant to sustain wildlife mm. from the very earliest to the very latest all through the year. So they have something to eat so that maybe the bears will go live in the woods instead of ripping off the siding of the garage. Well, it's very true. I mean, if you are doing things that are attracting wildlife, I mean, why should they hunt for it if it's put out there for them? Exactly. I mean, you know, bears, raccoons, wildlife, uh, m many many of these animals are very, very bright. People tend to underestimate them. And what I find to be remarkable is that if you you teach a raccoon or a bear something once, they don't mm -hmm. need to know again. They retain it. They will never do it again. Whereas human beings, we're stupid. We just keep going back <laughs> and back, over and over and over. And it's just interesting that if, as you pointed out, if people that are putting food in places that um, these animals can uh, possibly um, get to the food, and what do they expect? So I think that's a very smart idea. Now, uh, I, I would lo also like to talk about the fact that you're a photographer. Mm -hmm. How long have you been a photographer, and can you just talk about some of your experiences? Oh, well, um, I had a career as an architectural photographer. I started 30-something years ago, but I found that, I don't know, a lot of my clients' houses, they were... Um, I just got really tired of overconsumption, and what really did me in was one client who was a very good designer. There were his and hers closets in this house that were bigger than the place I lived, and the man had 39 pairs of very expensive brown shoes. And I thought, there are a lot of hungry people in the world. You know, how many shoes does somebody need? And I started more and more thinking about just how empty some of these places felt and how 
gratifying it was to be in the garden and to be nurturing life and to be communicating about that. And um, that was sort of a turning point that, you know, I had been doing architecture and gardens, but um, I just decided I don't want to work indoors anymore and I don't want to go to these houses anymore. And um, I've photographed all over the country. I've done six books and have been very active with the Garden Writers Association of America. So we have a conference in a different city every year, and I go and I stay extra and learn about gardens and photograph gardens all over the place. That's got to be the best job in the world. And, I've, you know, gardeners, we all learn from each other, so I have learned so much from other gardeners, and and I love being able to pass that on and share that with people. And especially since you have such um, an extensive background, I'm sure, combined with your training, you really know how to capture images that are just breathtaking. Oh, well, thanks very much. Um, You know, I always try to take pictures that are pretty, but I really want to do more than that. And sometimes just a few words can change the way you look at things. And I once had an editor who I took the trouble to ask, you know, what are you looking for? What do you really want to see? And he said, I want every photo to be beautiful. I want every photo to have a human element, to have an emotional quality, and to make a point in the story. And that's what I try to do. And so that's why when when Beth Young, who wrote the Naturescaping Workbook, contacted me, um, I had a lot of photos with a story behind them. And um, so I'm always trying to, to communicate. And that, that checklist, those four points go through my head every time I take a picture. And there's such a popular notion of photographers in the media just going click, 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 click through life. And that's not it. I really like to slow down and study something and think, what's the story here? What am I trying to communicate? And how can I do it better? You know, What can I take out of the picture that doesn't contribute to that point? Or what can I put in that might help communicate even better? And I think, especially with your work, you've been very effective at capturing um, not only the beauty and elegance of the different uh, plants that you photograph, but also uh, an interest in the person that's viewing these photographs, these images. Um, I remember I did a project that was um, actually, uh, we were supposed to just photograph weeds just mm-hmm. for identification purposes, mm-hmm. and I took so much time to photograph the the plants that I uh, selected that um, I received a lot of compliments, and I decided to take those images and use them with some of my students, my younger students, and just to teach them about some of the different plants and how we as homeowners may view these plants as weeds, but they're quite beneficial um, mm-hmm know in the region and it's just interesting when you look at photographs as you pointed out you can take a picture anybody can take a picture but when you take a picture and you're able to capture that essence of what that plant represents the plant's energy and just the beauty of something that's just so perfect that's out in nature that takes a lot of talent well it takes a lot of looking and it takes thinking and you know when i i sometimes teach um photography courses I've taught at the New York Botanical Garden and I'll be up at the Berkshire Botanic Garden in August. Um, I you have tell, the best job. 
<laughs> I love it. It's like, Gee, what would I like to do? And then you make it happen. But I tell students that your most important equipment are your eyes and your brain. Um, one of the books I did is called The Homeowner's Complete Tree and Shrub Handbook, and it's got almost 650 of my photos in it. And it was really a challenge, first of all, because um, plants down in the ground might be still, but you go 10 feet up and, and the leaves are moving. That trees wound up being very, very challenging to photograph. But, you know, what we needed to communicate was, what does this plant look like? And when you think about it, you have to pick a representative example and you want to show one that's in good shape because you don't really want to communicate that this is, you know, a disease-ridden thing. Um, you want to make sure you have the right name if you're doing a book. You know, what is the shape of the leaves? What is the branch structure? How are the leaves arranged on the branch? What do the flowers look like? How can you use it in the landscape? Um, so you're looking at and trying to communicate all those things in one in one photograph, and it, it takes a lot. So, um, you know, I think with your your weeds photography, you engaged in that process of really thinking and looking. And you think, well, if this plant is important for attracting beneficial insects, you, you spend an hour hanging around waiting for one of those beneficial insects to to show up because telling it doesn't tell the story. You have to show it when it's a photograph. Mm. Well, that's why I keep my camera <laughs> on me almost all the time. Oh, good I have for a, you. I have a spare camera that's right by the, the back door, and uh, the minute that I spot a bird or just something that I find to be fascinating, um, off I go. And I find that a lot of uh, people that are really enthusiastic about nature, and especially gardening, many of the master gardeners that I know they have cameras, you know, ready and waiting. Yeah. Uh, especially, especially if you have a butterfly habitat, which you know you never know when they're going to come, and sometimes they stay. Uh, in my case, they butterflies tend to hang out a little bit, and uh, uh, it's it's just amazing when you have butterflies that are coming into your yard, and they just they come up to you. They're not afraid of you. They're just they're like friends, you know, and mm -hmm. um, it's very interesting that, uh, especially when you're trying to teach kids, how quickly kids grasp the information as far as which plants to uh, select, um, how to collect the eggs, uh, what the caterpillars look like, the behavior of the caterpillars, so on and so forth, and kids are just great, and they really look forward to all the different uh, stages when it comes to the whole transition. Oh, that's so true. Yeah, I think that it's just hugely important to get kids engaged with with nature really early on because then they're always observant. They care. They'll be stewards. Um, it's funny. When my son's, gosh, next week he'll be 22, um, when he was a kid, I remember that all the kids were, you know, they were learning about the rainforest and they were all they had this sort of anxiety about saving the rainforest and, you know, their fundraisers were all selling Rainforest Crunch and Rainforest T-shirts, but they didn't know anything about what was in their own backyards. Mm. And they'd come here and, and learn a lot of things. Um, and it's funny that now um, the kids are grown up and gone, but their parents are some of my best garden coaching clients <laughs> because the parents didn't know either. 
and I've got one coaching client who, she said, gee, we used to have woodcocks everywhere, and, and they're all gone. And I looked at their place, and, you know, some typical land care maintenance company came in, and they cut all the brush. You know, there was no understory. Um, I, I have a bee in my bonnet about what people are doing to the um, structure of the forest and destroying the habitat. So, you know, there's nothing there to eat. And now they get it. You know, when I pointed out, well, here's here's one native understory tree left, and here's what eats it. And, you know, you have this spice bush here that, that you never even saw, and that's why we have spice bush swallowtails. And people are so into it and telling me, wow, I never knew that was there till you pointed it out. And it's been there all along, except for where you know, somebody came and cut it all down. Yeah, people so, are really disconnected. It's just amazing. And then what's funny is uh, they'll they'll take trips with the family to botanical gardens, and like, my favorite place on the entire earth is the Brooklyn Botanic Garden, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I, I just love it there. And there's always something that everybody can find to be of interest. doesn't matter if you've got a green thumb or not. There's just so much beauty there. And it's interesting when I watch people go through um, some of the different um, gardens, especially the Discovery Garden, which is for the children, mm-hmm. uh, and they look at different plants and whatnot. And then once they begin to identify some of these plants, they say, oh, yeah, my grandmother had that, or yeah. oh, my mom used to plant that. And it really brings back a lot of memories and encourages them to go home and buy some of the plants and, you know, get involved. And I think that's that's the main thing, getting people reconnected with nature, getting them out there. And, you know, folks, you don't have to be a master gardener. You don't have to have a Ph.D. You just have to have interest. And I'll say this for once and for all. There are many master gardeners, Ph.D.s, professors, what have you. Sometimes plants die. It happens. Uh, <laughs> we're all not perfect. Um I know. Uh, <laughs> I would say so, that's how that's how you learn. Exactly. That's how you learn. You know, you, you're not a real gardener till you've killed a lot of plants. And it's not that we're careless or neglectful. It's just sometimes you do something that, um, you know, you just either didn't know or it just, you know, you think that you're doing the right thing, or in some cases it just happens. I mean, it, it's it's part of gardening and. I remember talking to a friend who was just horrified. She's like, she's like, plants, you know, you've killed plants? And I'm like, not on purpose. It's not like I go out there hacking them <laughs> away. It's just if you transplant something or if you grow something and you're not uh, giving it the proper care, just not out of neglect, but just, you know, things happen. But the point is, is that people really should try. And especially with the economy, more people are growing their own vegetables they're opting to grow at least their own herbs in small container gardens um there's a very big movement for aquaponics um have you done any work with aquaponics no i haven't it's a very fascinating uh method of growing your own food uh and it's completely sustainable and uh uh is that combining fish and plants yes. and, and having a closed closed loop? I haven't gotten that ambitious. I have you know, I have ground here 
and I mean, it sounds fascinating, but um, it's something that is it's been around for a very long time, but it's starting and once again people are starting to take interest in how their food is grown. And that's why I think the work that you're doing, you're helping so many people to figure out, okay, well, um, this is what is native to the area. And native plants, people don't understand the value of native plants until they really start taking a closer look at their role in the ecosystem. And can you talk about um, the native plants, uh, what, how you advise your clients and students about native plants and what they really should know? Well, one of the things I start with is Doug Tallamy's book, Bringing Nature Home, is ah, Doug, so Dr. Tallamy. hugely important. And, you know, he just, it's very simple. <laughs> um, I think that... Um, I have a talk I do called um, Landscaping with Native Plants, Healing Our Home Turf. And I think that people relate to birds. It's a, it's a portal. It's a way to get them to care and to pay attention. And once they start paying attention, they notice all kinds of things. And it's a good way to get a handle on complexity and interrelationships. So, you know, I think people care more about birds than they do about, the, say, the frogs that they find drowned in their swimming pool filter. And here's what Tallamy says, and I repeat this again and again. I think I say it in half half my talks. 96% of North American terrestrial birds eat insects. They need protein in the spring to feed their young. Okay. And 90% of our insects here only eat specific plants, which are the ones they evolved with. They can't just go eat something else. So when we plant what horticulture has touted as pestry plants, exotic plants that are from somewhere else that evolved with a whole different set of microorganisms and animals and birds and insects. Um, If nothing eats them, we plant these plants that nothing eats and we wonder what happened to all the birds we used to have. Well, not only do many of the plants not give birds something to eat, but they don't give insects something to eat, which feed the birds. Um, so that that's pretty eye-opening to people. And uh, one of the examples I show is, here's a picture of a kusa dogwood, a Chinese dogwood. It is one of our loveliest landscape trees, and nothing eats it. So Talamy says that not a single species of moth or butterfly eats Cornus kusa, kusa dogwood. And not, no birds eat its fruit, although someone pointed out the other night that raccoons eat the fruit. And then we look at our native dogwoods where over 100 moths and butterflies feed on it. And it provides really valuable fruit in the fall, which is time to ripen exactly when the birds that co-evolved with it are migrating and they're full of fats and lipids, which they need to sustain their migration. So they depend on each other, the birds, for food. Um, They can find them because they turn bright red in fall. And then the dogwood depends on the birds to spread the seed. So, you know, that's just one little story, one one little example of the interactions of our native um, plants and insects and birds and butterflies and bees and everything else. So um, people just, people don't mean to do damage, they just don't know. And um, I've had people come to me and say, 
wow, you know, when I heard you say that and you talked, that totally changed my way of thinking about landscaping. And I have to say, you know, it's not me, it's Doug Tallamy, but I'm bringing the message to homeowners, to people who aren't going to the kind of symposiums I'm going to and hearing these people speak, Mm. trying to um, have translate science to homeowners in their gardens. It's such a small Dr. Tallamy has been on the show before. I, I just adore him. And, oh, good. Um, he's great. <laughs> I feel like there's a real there's a real direct line between, you know, Rachel Carson's Silent Spring completely changed people's way of thinking, and then Sarah Stein with Noah's Garden, and then Doug Tallamy. So yeah, these are it, important it, people who kind of sounded the alarm and, and gave us scientific proof for why we should do what you know, we know is right to do in the first place. Yes, and, uh, of course. And what's interesting is that, as you pointed out, there are people that they don't think about some of these things because they are just looking at things from an aesthetic perspective where, oh, well, I want this to be, you know, look a certain way, and uh, also I, I don't want to upset my neighbors, God forbid. Well, also, I mean, yeah, and sometimes it's not even that deep. It's It's marketing it's like oh i gotta go to home depot and buy my you know three you know three point lawn care program and kill these dandelions and they just you know where do they get their information they're not getting it from doug tallamy at a gardening symposium they're getting it from you know home depot ads from television yeah and the marketers have a very clear agenda and that's basically to sell product they're not out there educating people no. about what they should be doing with the environment and what is harmful. And, you know, case in point with these neonicotinoids that um, they've been coating all the seeds. They are found in uh, so many plants, trees, and shrubs. And because they're not labeled, homeowners have no idea that they are coming into contact with these types of chemicals. And, uh yeah, it's, it's kind of horrific when you take a closer look at the commercial um, nurseries that are uh, selling all this stuff, you know? Well, I say hurrah for the ones who aren't. Um, places like NatureWorks in, in Northford, Connecticut, um, Nancy DeBrule Clemente started it mm, 20-something years ago, 20 years ago, 21 years ago. Maybe it was 30 years ago. It was quite a while and it's been organic since the very start. And um, she's been a real voice in educating people and was president of NOFA at one point. And I think that NOFA, the, the Northeast Organic Farmers Association, which started out being just about food and has since um, written standards for organic land care and started a progr- an accreditation program, which, in fact, I became accredited a year ago, year and a half ago, two years ago. Um, they're just so important in spreading the word. But none of these groups have the advertising dollars that um, certain unnamed companies have. Oh, of course. But that's why when you work with other gardeners and you start reaching out within your community and you lead by example, you start showing your neighbors what you're doing that's different and it's amazing how people do catch on now um another colleague of yours irene virag who's very well known in the new york area um 
she was on the show and she she spoke about how she turned her front yard into a garden and she planted all sorts of herbs vegetables you know all sorts of wonderful plants mm-hmm. and inevitably her neighbors started paying attention well kind of hard not to pay attention to what she does but they started Mm -hmm. to pay attention to what she was doing and you know people took an interest in her style and it began to catch on now with your students when you're teaching them about the native plants what are some of the recommendations that you make as far as trying to find out which plants are native um, or rather indigenous to the specific area that you live in. Are there any particular resources that you recommend or places where they should go? Well, one of the best resources is their eyes. And I'm kind of doing this one, I'm, I'm, I'm giving talks and showing a lot of plants. Um, so going to a talk like that is, is helpful. Going to a nature center um, going to a botanical garden, any place that has native plant collections, because a lot of people don't, you know, they think things like bittersweet or, you know, things that are just out in the woods, they don't really understand that certain plants are invasive. So um, it's one thing that I point out um, kind of one by one. But where I start with people is looking at what they already have, because those are the plants that want to be there and learning from what wants to be there. Um, instead of doing what, you know, I think I did as a child, I um, weeded out all the, you know, all the weeds, which were, you know, probably incredibly well-adapted native plants, and went out into the cow pastures next door and got commonure and dug it in and prepared the soil and dug up rare wildflowers and planted them there, and they all died. And so then I did it all over again. And that's kind of what horticulture teaches us. But if we, you know, look at the woods and just just having a guide sometimes or going to a place where these plants are labeled and saying, oh, gee, I've got that. I didn't, you know, I didn't know what that was. Um, Audubon centers, really, really important places for resources for learning. And I think one of the other uh, very important things to remember, folks, is that with the native plants, there are so many different um, beneficial insects um, that and, and other animals that are dependent upon these plants for survival. So um, if you're wondering why you don't see any, any um, bumblebees or honeybees in your yard and you happen to be dumping all sorts of chemicals to keep your lawn dandelion-free and weed-free, so on and so forth, uh, look at what you're doing to the environment and look at what type of uh, food is available for these these beings. And I think that's such an important thing to remember when it comes to doing anything with your yard. You know, what do you have available? What is the purpose of the land? I mean, do you, do you have any attention to use it to attract um, butterflies or a particular... Um, species of some sort. I mean, it, it, you really have to think about that. And I think people just kind of assume that because they have land there, that all of a sudden anything that's uh, that they want is going to come. Well, I think a, a lot of you know suburban landscaping is pretty barren. But um, I, I'd like to get back to something that Beth Young said that really appeals to me. I think about this all the time. She said naturescaping is paying attention to nature 
and how things work in nature so that you can be cheap and lazy and still have the prettiest garden on the block. So part of it is about attracting wildlife and not killing it. Um, Part of it is about making habitat for people, too, Um, but paying attention to the processes in nature, um, letting water infiltrate into the ground instead of quickly doing the engineer's solution, you know, piping it off into the storm sewer as fast as you can, and then pumping more water out of the aquifer to water your lawn. So I use woodlands as an example of a really low-maintenance garden. And think, can we, can we make gardens that are structured this way, that, that don't necessarily look like nature, but they function like nature? And this is really important. So, you know, just out in any old woods, you have canopy trees. And then underneath them, you have understory trees and understory shrubs. And then you have a ground layer, you know, ground covering plants. And nobody weeds it, nobody waters it, nobody fertilizes it, but it's a completely self-maintaining ecosystem. Um, So can we look at our yards that way and plant in layers like that? And what happens is that, you know, the leaves break the force of the rain so that it's not creating erosion. And the leaf litter, if allowed to stay, will break down and make soil. It'll support microorganisms in the soil so that the soil can absorb more moisture and so that it provides nutrients for everything that grows there. Everything has its own little niche and isn't really competing with each other. Everything has a space above ground and below ground. And when the ground is completely covered, um, where is a weed seed going to germinate? You know, it's not getting any light. So, um, you know, that's a really good way to think about our yards rather than kind of a bare expanse of a monoculture lawn and with a tree in the middle of it that doesn't want to be in the middle of it that maybe wants to be growing underneath a taller tree. Now, what do you advise people that are looking to make some changes because maybe they have a lot of overgrown brush and they don't necessarily want to cut everything back, Mm -hmm. uh, but they just want to um, change things up a little bit uh, make it a little bit more attractive. Well, I think editing's really, really creative and fascinating. And the first thing you want to do is look at the plants you have and think, do I like this? You know, if if you have some broken, bashed up thing that you just don't even like, why live with it? It's your yard. Um, if you have things that are overgrown, a lot of times people have trees that are just just you know, at the breaking point or past with bittersweet vines that are girdling their shrubs and trees or climbing up and the weight will, will break the branches. So it's really important to identify those invasive things. Um, invasive trees like Norway maples, bittersweet, um, burning bush euonymus, barberry, and um, get rid of them. And another thing I do advise people to do, I see so often, you know, here's a shrub in the middle of the lawn or a peony, and there's another one, and there's another one, and there's another one. And somebody's mowing all circles around all of those little separate things, and the grass doesn't, you know, there's no edge so that the grass gets in, and they're constantly weeding and constantly mowing, is to consolidate things 
you know, plant them together, make an edge so you only have to mow around one thing. Um, quite often I see places where there's, I mean, my whole yard is so steep that it's nuts to mow it. And I see place, you know, I see people mowing places that you can't even walk. So why not plant something that will maintain itself, something like a shrub thicket? So instead of thinking of individual shrubs, you plant a whole bunch of them, preferably native ones, and they provide habitat, they provide shelter, do plants that provide food, and um, you never have to mow it. I think that's a good... Yeah, I think that's a good utilization of the land, especially since um, you, you may have these pockets where people aren't going to walk there anyway. May as, you may as well make it more attractive and enhance the landscape by mm. adding something that uh, can either attract uh, pollinators or be uh, become a habitat for birds, yeah, what have you. Absolutely, and there's nothing more low-maintenance than a shrub thicket. Or you know, if somebody's mowing two acres of lawn, you know, maybe reduce that area. Maybe just let it let some other areas grow, and see what comes up. See what happens. Maybe mow it. Maybe mow in patterns. Maybe certain areas just mow them once a month. Um, one little trick is if if you know if it starts looking too wild, and this this is something in. In suburban places, put a frame around it. You know, if you have a little edge of lawn and then a meadow in your front yard, people will understand that that's intentional, that you didn't just let it go to rack and ruin. Um, I live in the country, so nobody can really see what I do here. And um, my feeling about lawns is it's just, you know, something green that you mow. So I don't really (laughs) worry too much about it. And I just let the clip, I just, when I get around to mowing it, let the clippings just stay where they are and compost, and it, it feeds itself. And it's interesting. The more people uh, understand what the problems are with the environment, the more people are starting to uh, realize that, you know, by being so anal about their lawns and about their lands, that that is not necessarily the best solution. And Actually, one of the things that I learned uh, from being on the Butterfly Garden Committee was when you plant certain uh, plants that attract butterflies, if they're planted um, so that they can kind of grow uh, close together, um, Mm -hmm. it prevents or, or it eliminates the need to really weed because there's no room for the weeds to grow. And it's just, you know, this this plush landscape that the butterflies just flock to. Well, you know, I mean, I think there is a purpose for lawn. You know, it's nice to be able to walk out there and to play on, but people make them too big. And one of the things I learned through the NOFA Organic Land Care Program is you can do organic lawns, and they can be really beautiful. Um, I personally am not interested in putting the effort into it. And... um, you know, but people who do want that kind of perfect-looking lawn, um, it can be done. It's, there's a transition period that ain't pretty, but um, you can do it a responsible way. Um, but it just seems like water is such a precious resource, it seems ridiculous to be watering lawns. Um, very interesting writer, 
the thinker Tom Christopher is working on um, lawns that are, and a lot of people are doing this, um, that have their grass selections, there were fescues um, mm-hmm. that never grow very big. So, you, you know, they're really low-care grasses. So just, you know, choosing a grass seed mix off the shelf is going to condemn you to high maintenance and high fuel use and fertilizer use and watering forever, but making an educated selection of what kind of grass you use and making sure it's suitable for your conditions is going to lead to a lot less maintenance and more organic approach. Now, especially in the Northeast, which is where we're both located, every August the same thing happens. The lawn dies because the temperature is very, very um, high, and the lawn basically um, becomes dormant, and people don't like that look, that brown, dead look of the grass. And a solution is to plant other types of plants, such as uh, there's so many different varieties of thyme that you can plant that will still provide some green, uh, but you can actually walk on it. Mm -hmm. Uh, People are opting to plant rock gardens and um, just all sorts of different herbs and whatnot that don't necessarily need to be watered as often as a lawn, but, uh, you know, you can utilize rainwater, you can utilize so many other resources to keep these these alternate types of gardens uh, healthy and, um, you know, just prosperous. Well, soil makes a big difference, too. I don't ever water my lawn and I don't ever water my garden. Maybe in a drought, I'll water my garden once or twice. And so paying attention to putting the right plant in the right place um, will really save you a lot of, you know, we want to conserve resources, but our own energy and time is a resource too. And having good soil, I I tend to think that, um, you know, when you select the right, the plant for the conditions you have, but two, in places like lawns or, cultivated beds, um, compost is the answer to practically everything. And I I don't water my lawn, even in a drought, and it doesn't really look all that bad. But also, uh, it used to be that the mark of a high-quality grass seed was that it had clover and yarrow and other plants in it. And, you know, back to something I learned from ecologist Tom Wessels is that Diversity equals stability in an ecosystem and resilience. And translating that to garden terms or lawn terms, diversity means low maintenance. And so, um, and diversity also contributes in our lawns. Yeah, and it also contributes to good uh, soil health. And if you have good, healthy soil, I mean, that's, that's basically the goal. So, top dressing with compost, using compost teas. Planting clover, white clover in your lawn means that they're nitrogen fixing and they provide nitrogen for the grass. But having good tilth to your soil, um, you know, and letting the letting the grass grow longer. So if you keep cutting the grass off at one inch, it never has a chance to recover and the roots are shallow and so it can't reach for moisture that might be in the soil. Excellent point. Now, when when you meet with people that have issues with a lot of uh, see, runoff water from 
just their roof or perhaps they are located uh, at the bottom of a hill or someplace where there's a collection of this water. Mm-hmm. Um, how difficult has it been to either um, install a rain garden or build rain barrels just to collect the runoff water? Well, when you measure the amount of roof square footage, you'd have to have an awful lot of rain barrels to accommodate what runs off the roof in a good uh, a storm, the kind that um, a friend in Texas, they call it a real frog choker. It's really <laughs> <I> hard. <bet. laughs> um, but I think that rain gardens are really terrific, and the Yukon University of Connecticut website, they, they're doing a lot with rain gardens, and they have a lot of design tips. Um, you don't want to have a rain garden right under your downspout. You want it 10 feet or more away from the house. So Why? That, well, think of all of the rain coming down the downspout and being released into the ground right next to your foundation. Where do you think it's going to wind up? It's going to wind up in your, in you know, going through the foundation. It'll wind up in your basement. Excellent so, reason. So, um, you know, pick a natural low spot. Not And this is counterintuitive, too, not a spot where water already collects because that means there's poor drainage. And the whole idea is to allow the water to infiltrate slowly into the earth and not be standing for more than 48 hours because if it's if it's standing for more than 48 hours, you're going to get mosquito larvae. Now, what if you use some type of protective covering like screening or something of that nature? Screening for what you mean for for the, for the cover for for the cover for your rain bar- barrel. I mean, can you take? I've seen people take old screens and uh, it's just amazing some of the covers that they've made where the water can oh, go yeah, in. You, you want to cover it, but I'm talking about rain gardens. Oh, okay. A, a rain barrel is going to fill up pretty fast, and it's a good thing to have. I have I have one um, that I was sent to a sample by Fiskars, and it has a little spigot on it, so you can you know the water goes right from your gutter um, into the barrel. It's got a top on it, and then you can take it out with the spigot. But but a rain garden, um, you want to have um, a, a level bottom dip downhill from where the water comes off your house and um, have nice loose soil full of plants that can take um, inundation and dryness because sometimes it's empty. But you want the water to soak in fast and not be sitting there. So if you already have sitting water, standing water, um, that's not a place for a rain garden. Well, let me ask you another question. In regards to um, the rain gardens, um, is it wise to encourage the accumulation of the water so that perhaps maybe some of the runoff can be consumed by some of the critters that are out there? They'll find it if it's there. Um, you don't want it standing because that's when you get mosquitoes. So um, I, I have a funny little thing in my side yard. We call it the mud wallow. Uh, <laughs> we had living with a mountain above me. I was getting a lot of water. Uh, there were underground streams, and it was going into the basement. And when we had curtain drains installed, we thought, you know, our son was little. We didn't want to fix up the place so much that there was no place for a little boy to play in the mud. And so we we just dug a pit and lined it with stones, 
and one of the pipes from the curtain drain that was taking water away from the house so it wouldn't run through the basement anymore runs into the pit and there's another pipe on the other side running out but they're not connected and um, so water would flow in and sit for a bit and then slowly absorb into the soil and I'm actually planning on expanding it um, to make it a much bigger place where the water soaks in faster uh, now that my son's 22 he doesn't uh, play in the mud in the mud wallow anymore <laughs> <laughs> well, let me ask you a question uh, on a different subject when it comes to just planting different types of plants flowers what have you do you tend to grow your own do you tend to buy them from catalogs and nurseries do you get them from other gardens what what do you do oh all of the above <laughs> i knew you were going to say that everything you know it's like books plants just come to you but i do a lot by seed and a lot i encourage to seed in place um I try to get rid of invasives and not let them seed, so I try to keep on top of weeds and not let them reproduce, but I try to let the plants I want reproduce, like wild geraniums. Oh, I've got Christmas ferns everywhere. Um, there were certain things that will self-sow in my garden, like hellebores that I adore. Oh, yeah, they're And different euphorbias. Um, so I don't deadhead them. I mean, if there's something I don't want to reproduce, I will certainly deadhead it. But I love the way um, plants put themselves in really unexpected places, places that I wouldn't ever dream of. Now, what about fruit? Do you grow any fruit? Um, I'm about to. I've just laid down cardboard and newspaper in layers on a section of the lawn to kill the grass. And when it's nice and dead, I'm going to um, dig in and plant a, a blueberry thicket. Um, one of those little steep places that um, you should have your head examined if you think it should be mowed. So <laughs> I'm tired. It's only a little slope, but it looks over a field, so I'm going to plant some um, native meadow grasses, some panicums, and some nice stinky pycnanthemum that the deer don't like to eat, hoping that... Um, that will discourage them from eating my blueberries. Now, speaking of which, uh, especially with deer, deer, doesn't matter if you're on the West Coast, in the Midwest, or the East Coast, a lot of homeowners have issues with deer. What are some, recommend- what are some recommendations that you have for uh, different plants and different options Boy, to naturally deer. combat this? <laughs> do I ever have deer? Um I have had deer eat virtually everything on the deer do not eat list, on every list I've ever seen. (laughs) Um, So I really can't say across the board, you know, deer do not eat this, but I'll tell you what has succeeded for me. Um, One, I I was co-author of a book called Elegant Silvers, and I really got into silver plants because they're beautiful, but I realized that being a photographer, I travel a lot, and... I'd be away, and when I'd come home, there were a lot of green things missing, and there were a lot of silver things that were still there. And so a lot of silver plants, they're dry, they have hairs, they, they're really aromatic, like think sage mm. or artemisias. They don't smell good. Some of them have nasty caustic sap, so they don't taste good. Um, so anything silver 
right across the board is a really good place to start. So artemisias. Um, I have a very silvery buddleia called Nanho Blue. Um, they ne- I've never had them even nibble that. Lamb's ears, I've never had them nibble. Um, donkey tail spurge, Euphorbia myrtides. You know, that's a real nasty one. They don't want to bite that. <laughs> um, and lamb's ears are great because they're great border plants and uh, they multiply. They multiply, and if you let them flower, boy, do they attract bees and other pollinators. Um, what else? Spireas. I have a golden bound spirea that they never touch. Boxwood. They don't touch dogwoods, hellebores, um, everything else. They gobble. <laughs> uh, Christmas ferns. They'll eat in the winter when there's not much else to eat. Um, what else? I'm sitting here looking out my window. <laughs> I have golden fever few that I love. It just self sows around the garden. I, I call. I do what I call gardening by subtraction. I let things self sow and I take them out where I don't want them. Um, so they haven't bothered that. I think that's a nice a, a nice way to look at things. Gardening by subtraction. I have to remember that. You know, there are a lot of holes in the garden when you have voles and deer, and um, a lot of times I don't get around to planting them, and the weeds appear. You know, because I garden on a mountain. You know, here's here's something I've learned: paying attention to nature. If you have bare ground, if if there's a disturbance say in an ecosystem you have disturbance plants that are colonizers well that's what the weeds are in our garden so if you have bare ground something's going to grow there and it's usually something you don't want and if you have bare ground you're susceptible to erosion so being on a steep mountainside I make sure that all ground is covered all year round so um, I don't mulch super heavily I try to make sure that plants cover the ground but I do mulch I like to put a light coating on in the fall. Um, I weed very well so the weeds don't go to seed. And I put a light a light bit on just to kind of hold the ground in place while things are dormant and have disappeared. And also because it makes it look nice. It looks like a garden. And then um, those plants that form mats and that have a presence throughout a lot of the year, like the hellebores and the, yeah. the lamb's ears. I was going to say what I usually do when I have um, a gap, whether a plant dies uh, or it gets pulled out by uh, some visitors in the wee hours of the morning, mm-hmm. um, I will sometimes just take a potted plant and put it there mm-hmm. just to fill in the space. And it's actually not as uh, much of a sore thumb as you would think. But, uh, I mean, there's so many things that you can use. You can use st- statues. Uh, stepping stones, all sorts of different things, you know, and I think the main thing is, as you pointed out, if you leave it bare, something that you don't want will definitely wind up there, Mm -hmm. and then, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, Another question that I have for you is, I remember um, I had a question that was sent in about uh, attracting hummingbirds. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are a lot of people... A lot of people that want to attract birds to their yards, but they and they also would like to attract butterflies at the same time. But the problem is, is that if you have a butterfly habitat, uh, you're basically creating um, a living food stand, if you will, for the birds. 
Well, you, for butterflies and birds, you need to feed them all year or when they're here feeding. And, you know, people plant cardinal flowers for hummingbirds. It's a great hummingbird plant. But when does cardinal flower bloom? Like July? So what are they supposed to eat until July? And one of the this is this was something that you know you talked about gardening with kids earlier that you know we re- I really made a study because I was exposing my son to the joys of nature and so I learned a lot of things and investigated things that I might not have otherwise but one of the great plants I have is Phlox stolonifera ground covering woodland phlox and it has a presence in the garden all winter so it covers ground and then in May it sends up Actually, maybe April, late April, early May. It sends up about maybe six-inch tall bloom stalks that are covered with these lovely lavender flowers. And the instant that blooms, the hummingbirds come. Oh, wow. And so to think, well, what else do hummingbirds like? You know, any tubular flower that's um, that's red, red is good. Um, they they go for my Nepeta Six Hills Giant. <laughs> So to just you know think about they they go for fuchsias. Um, think about okay, well that that phlox is early. Mertensia virginica, Virginia bluebells, that bloom very early in the understory and then go dormant. So if you feed them early, they st- I mean they stick around and they nest in my yard. Nice. That's and that's think, really fantastic. I think that they might go for um, rhododendrons too. And so the same with butterflies. You give the caterpillar something to eat and the butterfly something to eat, and you'll have them both, and they will make themselves at home, and they will reproduce and stick around. Um, the, the hummingbird feeders with the red dye, you have to keep them clean or you'll be just making, you're giving them, you're poisoning them if they get bacteria. Exactly, exactly. I don't have time for that. I don't have time. You know, you need to clean your bird feeder if you can have a bird feeder, if the bears will allow that, because... Birds congregate, and that's where diseases are spread. So um, I think you're much better stepping back a little bit and thinking what can you plant that will create habitat, and it doesn't have to look wild. It can be a very formal garden. You know, I know of one place, really, really formal garden, that has blueberry hedges. And oh, wow. And providing food for all kinds of insects, birds, butterflies. Now, Karen, do you have pictures of that Sure do. Can is it in one of your books? Is it in one of my books? Um, I'm not sure to tell you the truth, <laughs> but it will be. I'm sure. <laughs> Karen, <laughs> it's in it's in my talks. And if you want to uh, see more of my talks, go to great www.greatgardenspeakers.com and fantastic. look up my name, and you'll you'll see that. And Karen, can you tell our audience also about some of the other? Books? 